a word of warning. There is original thought in this sermon. And as Erin said when I told her that, she said, oh no! She always hates original thought. So, I'll warn you when we get there. I think it would be a safe assumption to say that we've all been lied about at one time or another. And maybe it was a small lie, which did not matter much in the scheme of things. Maybe, though, it did matter, feeling like it was life or death at the time. Sometimes, as we'll see here in Acts 6, 8 through the end of uh, uh, chapter 7, lies truly are a matter of life and death. There's a famous saying that, uh, that goes, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth pulls its boots on. It is a witticism that is attributed to Mark Twain, which is amusing in itself since he never said it, okay? It's been said that anybody from Winston Churchill to Benjamin Franklin first said it with a stop at Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon used it in a sermon in 1855 and said that it was an ancient proverb. And indeed it was. It was first written and seen in literature in 1710 by Jonathan Swift in a various version of it. But no matter who said it when, it's undeniable that the truth never catches up to a lie. It just doesn't. That's why people try to get the lie out first. We see it in our politics. One of our newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times will print something. And it's completely wrong. And the retraction is on page 37 at the bottom of the corner in small print. The truth never catches up to a lie once the, once the lie is told. In our passage today, we'll see that Stephen is lied about. And it's the same thing that Jesus was lied about. Blasphemy against the temple. Now, we today believe, at least in my realm of thinking, that we can only blaspheme about God and not about a thing. I've heard that. I think I believe it. Uh, but the you can read, uh, lie about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see that with Ananias and Sapphira. You can lie about Jesus and deny he's the Son of God. You can lie about God himself and say that God does not exist. But lying about a thing is something different. However, the actual dictionary definition of blasphemy from Merriam-Webster is showing contempt or a lack of reverence for God. And then the third says, or something considered sacred. Okay? And they considered the temple sacred. Now, I... As we uh, look into this passage, I just want to point out that being accused of something Jesus was accused of puts you in the right column in the ledger, okay? It's, it's not something you should be ashamed of. Our first verse today, verse 8 in uh, Acts 7, says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Only three people in the New Testament, besides the apostles, were attested to of doing signs and wonders. Barnabas, called the son of encouragement, who established churches throughout Asia with Paul, was one of them. The other two were two of the seven men called by the apostles to minister to the widows, the Hellenistic widows of Jerusalem, Philip and Stephen. Now we don't know if either one of those guys, and I guess guys is not, let's find a better word, if either one of those gentlemen were performing these works before the apostles laid hands on them. Some people think that the act of the apostles laying hands on the seven that were called had some of their power rub off on them, enabled them to do signs and wonders, but we do not know if that is for a fact. However, going forward, both Philip and Stephen were known for their signs and wonders, which God gave to authenticate his ministers. Now, verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, there is a debate on how many synagogues are mentioned here, okay? Because it says the synagogues of the freedmen, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia, and Asia. So, is there one? Did the uh, synagogue of the freedmen include all those people? Were there three? Usually people don't say two, they say three, which is lumping the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians together. They were both North African peoples, peoples of Roman and Greek extraction, by the way. They, everybody said, oh, you know, if Jesus lived in Egypt, he must have been black. Well, no, Northern Africa was, Cleopatra was Greek. She was a Ptolemy, okay? North Africa was peopled by Romans and Greeks. So, did those people form their own congregation? And then the um, Cilicians and the Asians. Now, Cilicia is a province of what we would now call Turkey. And Asia also commonly referred to Turkey. So, did those two groups form together and have their own synagogue? We don't know. So, going forward, I'm just going to call it the, the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, I've told you before that synagogues came about because of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, the exile in 605 BC. I've mentioned before that it was not known when the priests were taken out, the priests and the leaders of Israel were taken out, taken out of Israel, whether they could worship God anymore or not. It was unknown. And they had to have a ruling from Jerusalem. And it was said, yes, indeed, you can. Um, and that's where synagogues were formed. They had to have a place for religious worship and instruction. And the synagogue, which simply means gathering, is what came to be in that place. Now, the Talmud says that at this time, let's just call it 33 AD, uh, there were 480 synagogues 
in Jerusalem. Now, it already had the temple, but the temple was then transitioned into being the major center. But if you want to, let's just call the synagogues the small groups of the temple. The small group meeting, you would get together with a synagogue for your small group worship. After the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, and I pointed this out before, but it's worth mentioning again, synagogues became the focus of Jewish life. There was no temple. There were no sacrifices. That was done away with. The only thing that we had were the synagogues after 70 AD. In this passage, like I said, as few as one or as many five um, synagogues are shown. Again, it's unclear how many synagogues are being talked about here, but however many synagogues there were, it says that they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, that sounds like an argument to you and I when we hear that, but the language used, according to the Greek commentary I read, is that used of a formal debate. When it says that the synagogue, uh, people in the synagogue rose up to dispute with Stephen. This is a formal debate. Now, I want to ask you a question. And now we're getting into something I've not seen in any books. So take it for what it's worth. Who would dispute with Stephen? Stephen is doing signs and wonders, which is just another word for miracle. He's speaking with authority and power. Somebody who is going to do that. First of all, it was somebody within the congregate, the synagogue of the freedmen or one of the others. The person would have to be trained in the law. They would have to be bold uh, to go up against Stephen. They would have to be sure of themselves to go up against Stephen. And perhaps there was a number of them. We don't know how many. It says that they rose up to dispute. Stephen was certainly to be found in the Hellenistic synagogues. After all, he was a Hellenistic Christian, which in AD, AD 33 meant that he was a Hellenistic Jew, first and foremost. There were no Gentile Christians yet. In every way, Christians were Jews and never considered themselves anything but. So Stephen was hanging out in the Hellenistic Greek-speaking synagogues. But there was a problem. These Greek-speaking freedmen from Egypt and Asia, and we've talked about this before in, in the Hellenistic Jews, they had an inferiority complex. And the freedmen especially, because the freedmen are just what the name implies. They were former captives, taken captive by the general Pompey, Roman general, in uh, 63 BC, transported into the empire. Eventually, by this time, 75 years later, they've earned their freedom. They've come back to Jerusalem. Some, and freedmen could be freed slaves or the sons of freed slaves. They have come back into Jerusalem, but they have an inferiority complex because not only are they Hellenistic and Greek-speaking, they're former slaves. They were trying 
to prove their worth to the Hebrew Jews. And by doing so, they were reacting extremely strongly to anything Stephen or any of the other Christian, Messianic Christians, any of the other believers in Jesus were doing. And so they disputed with, with Stephen. So when you find somebody, where do you find somebody who's going to go up against Stephen? That is in the synagogue of the freedmen, is an orator, trained in the law, headstrong. I want to point out that in this passage, and as we look at this passage, I'm going to be here for weeks until we get to the end of chapter 7. But this is one day, starting in chapter 6 where we are, uh, just, just were, but this chapter 7 is one day. The debate takes place. He's, Stephen is hauled before the uh, Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the council, and he's taken out in stone in one day. Okay? So keep that in mind. Two people are named in this chapter only. Okay? Stephen's one of them. Now, I don't believe in coincidences in the Bible. Because the other person named is from Cilicia, master of the law, says he has two doctorates before the age of 21. Uh, He's pretty headstrong. He's perhaps the greatest orator the world has ever known. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and his name shows up here at the end of this chapter because Stephen has now been taken out of the city and says but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said behold I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And of course we know Saul as Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was one of the main cities in Cilicia. One of the two people named in this whole thing. And everybody says, well this is a transition to Saul's ministry a little bit later on. But is that all it is? I don't know. Like I say, two people are named here. This side of heaven, we will never know if it was Saul who debated Stephen. Uh, But just as with Hillel, Saman, and Gamaliel, I do not believe there are any coincidences in Scripture. And there is Saul, the soon-to-be Apostle Paul, looking on at Stephen's stoning. So in verses 9 through 10, it says, and if I'm repeating, it's just to get the context, 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He engaged in the debate. The word full here means to be filled up, totally controlled by faith. And while we can't all be as Stephen was, you know, we're not working signs and wonders, we're not working miracles. We can all be like Stephen in one way. It is the privilege of every Christian to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That power is ours. Stephen, it says, was also full of grace. And John MacArthur points out that Stephen did not have a spirit of fear. We don't see anywhere in this passage, and as we go on, that he was afraid of anything. Neither fear nor hate controlled him. Only trust and submission. Verse 10 says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And you know... As I, think, as I think, was this Paul or not? You know, Paul goes on and confronts the greatest philosophers of his day in Athens and in other places. And did he lose a debate to Stephen? And if so, he lost it to the Holy Spirit, which I just absolutely love if that is the case. In Luke 21, Jesus predicts the persecution his followers would face. Luke 21, 10 through 19, then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Mind you, when Jesus says that, that's a hair of your eternal head, okay? Because we are all going to die, and everybody has died, and all of these people die, but perish here has the sense of everlasting. Will you perish? We're Christians. We will not perish. We will die. And some may die badly. But you will not perish. So after losing this very public debate to Stephen, those who opposed him and the new Christian church did what we see every, even today, by the losing side. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said... We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Um, The losing side 
instigated men to lie about what Stephen said. Stephen never blasphemed either Moses or God. However, we have seen uh, down to our own times that opponents accuse others of that which they themselves do. Projection is a real thing, and people project on, especially on Christians, all the time what our motives are based on what their motives are. The children of the father of lies accuse others of lying, which is the basis of blasphemy, by the way, lying about the Holy Spirit, lying about whatever. It is the basis of blasphemy, but it is promoted by the father of lies. Verse 12 gives us the upshot of these accusations. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Their lies about Stephen had the desired effect. It stirred up opposition to him to the point of violence. The word here for seized is Greek and when I say these words, I will say again that I do not speak Greek. Uh, they do give me little lines across the vowels, so it looks like a hard A to me. But I do not. My children would be laughing. But be that as it may, the Greek word sunarpezo means to drag away, okay? Or to seize with violence. Stephen was not led gently away to appear before the authorities. He was like the apostles when they appeared before the Sanhedrin, roughed up for good measure. You know, it, it was not a gentle thing. So, verses 12 through 13 says, They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Now, if this were true, speaking against the temple would be a serious thing to many people in Jerusalem, especially to the people he was brought before, because speaking against the temple endangered their livelihood. They made money from the operation of the temple. We wonder sometimes why why people in government fight as hard as they do about reform. You know, when, when conservatives say, we'd like to stop spending as much money as we do, there are a number of people who make money off the government, off government contracts, off government lobbying. The bigger the government, the more money they make. The more short-sighted they are, but this is the truth. And the same thing was going on in Jerusalem Many people, especially the powerful, made their money from the temple. So when Stephen says, when they rouse up against Stephen, uh, saying that he speaks words against this holy place in the law, it is endangering their own interests. False witnesses were procured, and the scene is almost a complete replay of Jesus' trial by the priest, chief priests, and the Sanhedrin. In Mark 14, 53 through 59, uh, it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, 
right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Okay, they were looking for testimony against Jesus, but no one spoke up. There was not a word to be said against him. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now look at what they said there. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple with my hands. What did he say? Well, we have the answer in John 2, 18 through 22. Jesus has just finished cleansing the temple with a whip. Okay? Probably the best way to cleanse any place that has authority in it. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? (laughs) And I would say if I was Jesus, I, you know, here's your sign. But no, of course, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, of which they were very proud, by the way, that uh, it was such a big building and took 46 years. This was a source of pride. But anyway, they... He said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. And John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And he goes on and says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they lied about what Jesus said. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. A commentator says that the way Jews viewed both Jesus and Stephen's statements about the temple were not wholesale uh, fabrications, but rather half-truths, subtle but deadly. Uh, Subtle but deadly misinterpretation of words actually uttered. So put together, Acts 7, 13 through 14 says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, not knowing what what Stephen actually said in this debate, because there is no record that I have seen anywhere of what was said in the debate between Stephen and whoever stood up to debate him I will rely instead that Stephen as he was filled by the Holy Spirit quoted Jesus accurately Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple neither did Stephen whether the accusers understood Jesus' words or not The charge is a lie either way. But in another sense, uh, one the freedmen and probably even Stephen did not understand, the arrival of the Messiah changed everything. 
As Jesus said, he did not come to do away with the law, as they're saying here in the charge against him. What did he say? He said, I come to fulfill the law. The coming of the gospel meant the end of the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law. These were going away. Indeed, in AD 70, after Jesus was crucified, the sacrificial law has gone away for good. It's not being done anymore. There are some who would argue that Judaism ceased to exist with the end of the uh, sacrificial law. Jews today, by the way, dispute that interpretation, surprisingly. So, I, you know, just, just so you know. But the crucifixion of Jesus as the lamb without blemish that took away the sins of the world made animal sacrifice meaningless. In the same way, as the fulfillment of the law, Christ and Christianity made the ceremonial law equally meaningless. With the coming of the real presence of God, the stand-in had no purpose anymore. With the coming of the real presence of God, those things did pass away, just as the Jews said Stephen was preaching, though he was not. And to conclude our passage for today, verse 15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The peace of God was on Stephen. Man could not harm him. He could not perish. The description of Stephen as having the face of an angel is unique in uh, the New Testament, uh, says Daryl Bach, one of the guys I read. Stephen has the appearance of one touched by God and in touch with God, reflecting a bit of God's glory. And it's one of Luke's ways of saying that Stephen is innocent. I mean, there's only so many ways you can say it, but if you have uh, the face of an angel, it's Luke's way of saying that he is innocent. Now, it's interesting for me if not for you, but too bad, to wonder if Saul of Tarsus was in on the formal debate with Stephen in the synagogue of the freedmen. If he was, it didn't convince him. It didn't convince him of the truth of the gospel. If anything, it enraged him uh, even more than he already was. Scripture uh, puts him at the scene. He says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. The murder of an innocent man did not sway Saul's view of Christianity. Indeed, he would go on a spree of terror, dragging men and women off, Scripture says, and committing them to prison. Nothing would stop Saul's misplaced zeal until he had an encounter with the risen Christ. You know, looking at the world today, I suspect many of us wonder what it's going to take to pull this world back from the path that it's taking. And the answer is the same as it's been for 2,000 years. Not flowery speeches, not good deeds, not reason or persuasion. 
if you've ever tried to debate somebody who is not a Christian, it does not. One of my friends, I said, let's debate Christianity. And he said, sure, the premise is there is no God. You know, it's pretty hard to hold debate with that premise. But flowery speeches, nor good deeds, nor reason or persuasion, as we'll see in Stephen's defense, will change the world. The only thing that will change this world is an encounter, just as Saul of Tarsus had, with the risen Savior. And that's, I hope, coming. (laughs) So we shall see. Let's close in prayer.